You're listening to Diversity Matters, a podcast about raising awareness and education through thought-provoking discussion, opinions, experiences, and inspirational stories from the complex world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Here's your host, Mike Seeley. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Diversity Matters, the podcast show that explores different topics that address the importance and benefits of diversity and inclusion in our society and the workplace. My guest this week is Stacey Simler. Stacey has spent the last 25 years managing key relationships with high-profile customers of technology market research organizations. In May 2021, Stacey joined Women in Technology International as Senior VP of Business Development and Government Affairs. During Stacey's six-month tenure, she spoke with Chief Diversity Officers, DEI Leaders and Managers, ERG Leaders, state, local and federal government agencies about their diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. Stacey's passion for racial and social justice began six years ago when she joined a national organization called Be the Bridge to Racial Reconciliation and began the journey of uncovering the meaning of systemic racism in the US and the layers and complexities that go with that. Three years ago, Stacey joined the Black Colleague Network with Informa Tech and began the journey of white allyship. Stacey's passion is to help white people realize unconscious bias, how it affects every aspect of our lives, and how we can help realize a truly inclusive culture. Stacey, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you for having me, Mike. It is a real honor to be here. Thanks so much. No worries. Let's uh, get straight into it. I would like to start off, actually, by just getting a little bit more insight into the national organization that you joined, uh, Be the Bridge to Racial Conciliation, uh, Reconciliation. Yeah. Sorry, Can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and the journey that you took there? Yeah, so interestingly, it started at church. I was at church. Mm-hmm. A few, a few, many few years ago on a Sunday, and uh, two women got up, and one was white and one was black, Christy and Rogay. And they started talking about this organization that they had joined that they wanted to bring to our church to see who might be interested in participating, uh, a nonprofit national organization called Be the Bridge to R- Racial Reconciliation started by Latasha Morrison. And that national organization, as I understand it, the premise was that the most segregated time in the United States was Sunday morning, when everybody went to their own churches, essentially. And really built on the, I mean, there's a a lot of biblical sound, um, you know, teachings about how we should be treating one another, basically. And I had not had any real interest, honestly, in doing this kind of work before then. But something about the way that these two women were talking about how they met and how Christy, the white woman, just kind of walked up to Rogay and said, hey, do you want to be friends? And Rogay thought, well, who's this crazy white woman? You know, and... and um just the way they talked to each other and talked to the audience, I I just felt compelled. Something about me felt absolutely compelled. After it was over, after the church service was over, I just 
ran up to the table and I said, sign me up, you know, <laughs> and we started meeting, you know, it was just crazy. I really had not had, I was one of those white people who was quote unquote colorblind until then, not realizing how incredibly dismissive and mm. hurtful that sort of attitude was at the time and still is, of course. Yeah. Were, um, were you surprised and- by anything that you you learned in that group was anything surprised you or was it just a case of you just weren't aware of some of the you know challenges and issues that were going on I think Mike I think everything surprised me I think absolutely everything surprised me we started out our discussions with when when you know there was so it was about 20 people when we first met um almost all white people I live in South Orange County in a white predominantly white community Rogay had been born and raised here. Rogay was, uh, and her couple of her family members were the only people of color there. The rest of us were a bunch of really ignorant white people, to be honest. And we started this journey with a document that was written by a woman who was um, Peggy McIntosh. So she was she was a um, a woman. You know, she was social justice and a lot yeah. of women's rights. But she wrote this because. The thing that really stuck out to me when we first started this was when she said that she was taught to see racism as individual acts of meanness. And because I had that attitude, I thought, I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not racist because that's what I thought. I did not see that these invisible systems and the very air I was breathing being born and raised in the United States where the country was founded on slavery was what what our country had been built on. And what I was so unaware of was that it was a system that was built on white supremacy. And so for me, that kind of took away the pressure, if you will, of, you know, <laughs> saying, oh, you know, uh, I'm not a racist and my friends aren't racist. We're not racist, even though so much was revealed to me. Um, throughout the process and still is revealed to me that tells me, you know, yeah, I'm a, uh, yes, I can say that I have been a racist um, because all I'm doing <laughs> is perpetuating the beliefs that I have been raised mm. with. You know, I have been taught to see, for example, you know, black men are scary, violent. I worked in, you know, I worked in DC and um, honestly, I worked in the white part of DC, of course. There was a fear back then, this was in the 80s, a, a fear of, oh, don't, you know, don't drive to the, to the Northeast or the Southeast quadrant, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be abducted, you know, or something will happen to you. So I, I had this fear growing up, even though I grew up in a very liberal home, very liberal home, my mother campaigned for prison rights when she had, you know, six children running around and, and still a very, you know, I was taught that we are here to help other people. Mm-hmm. But so many things surprised me. I mean, I was reading things that I never would have known before. For example, when John uh, Thomas Jefferson, our one of our quote, founding fathers, uh, what wrote the Declaration of Independence when he wrote the famous statement "All men are created equal" in 1778, it turns out that he was talking about white men of property. That's what he was talking about. He owned mm-hmm. jo- Thomas Jefferson owned 600 slaves yeah. over the course of his improper, uh, lifetime. And when he wrote the Declaration of Independence that all men were created equal, he had 60 slaves, including his mistress, Sally Hemings, 
who bore him six children, the first of which when she was 16 years old. And so that was a big eye-opener on slavery and that everything and all the complications and layers that stem from that made me a racist. Our entire country was built on. This was a huge eye-opening experience for me. I mean, I just didn't realize that every single day I was living, eating, and breathing white supremacy. I did not know that. So, Stacey, having joined um, Be the Bridge to Racial Conciliation and and the group, how has that changed you? You know, what, what have you learned? What are you doing differently now? Oh, boy. I hope many things. I hope there are many things I'm doing differently. One of the things that we were really encouraged to do in the very beginning of our white ally journey was to get educated ourselves, to read as much as we could. You know, it was a Facebook group um, based on Facebook when it first started. Actually, Latasha got a million dollar grant from, from Facebook a few years ago. And when we joined the group, we were told that we could not post anything or even like anything that anybody wrote for three months. So we were silent listeners for three months and we were encouraged to do our coursework, which I did. I did a, um, an, a 12-week course called Whiteness Intensive that was very, very eye-opening. There are so many great resources that we have here to just open my eyes. And I have learned so much about how I see people how I hear people, how I talk to people, what is my motivation here? So in the very beginning, there was a lot of things that I would say to myself, oh, well, that's not me. I don't do that. I'm not from the South. I'm better because it's those Southern people. You know, they're the ones with the problems. Hmm. Um, or it's the Midwest people with the problems with, you know, our indigenous community. No, I was raised in a liberal home. You know, and so I I saw some self justifications that were, for some reason, I was able to see. I don't know. I was able to see them, and 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 being in the group, you know, we were really encouraged to see them. And sometimes we'd have you know somebody just say to us, "Did, did you hear what you just said to yourself?" I said to someone, "Oh, you know, this friend of mine, she can't get a." a place to rent because you know they'll take her application, but then when they talk her on the phone, she sounds black. And my friend, Rogay, was like, why do you think she sounds black? Hmm. What is black to you? What does that sound like? And so we would go through the, we literally would talk about the history of language in the South, where most of the slavery was taking place. And so that's just an example. But I, I would say that I am constantly being, and was then to check myself. Why am I thinking that? What do I hear? What do I see on television? How do I see that person? How do I, how do I react to that person? I mean, a lot of my internal reactions were things I was checking and still check all the time, all the time. And one of the things that I learned to do was just to kind of be, just to not be me. I Mm. mean, just to not be myself, just to not be me. The way I looked at the way I would look at people and talk to people and um, you know, look, look people in the eye, you know, when I see, um, you know, men of color, when I see an African-American man at the gym, you mm. know, I, I say, Hey, how's it going? You know, just because I don't want to be that person anymore. I was like, mm. Oh, don't look, 
you know, don't say yeah. hello or look too hard. So is that, that much more now of a, a conscious awareness that you you have? That's exactly it, Mike. Yeah. That's exactly and do you, it. Much more of a do you think, awareness. even today, do you think that particularly in America, there's not enough education around this or is it just that people just don't care? You know, they're not interested. It doesn't concern them. So they keep themselves distant from any of these issues and challenges that are faced in the U.S. All of the above. We have so much work to do. And yes, George Floyd's murder, because I call it what it is, Mm -hmm. was very pivotal, pivotal in opening up the narrative and helping people like me to see, even though I had been doing, you know, work for a couple of years prior to that time, you know, because I kind of had this different view, I I, I saw people kind of coming out of the woodwork, if you will, like mm-hmm. to to realize, to to try to realize or to try to understand like what's really going on here. But I will tell you, Mike, that most of the time I see people justifying. I hear people justifying. Yeah. Well, if they weren't in this place, well, if he wasn't there, well, you know, if, it, you know, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, well, are you sure that you felt targeted? Are you sure? You know, just mm. I, that's honestly what I hear mostly. I feel like in the United States, we have so much work to do. Yeah. And today being Juneteenth, by the way, mm-hmm. it, it was recognized as a federal holiday in 2021. 160 years after. Yeah. It's crazy. This after was signed, signed by Joe Biden, right? Yes. President yeah. Biden signed it uh, as, as, as a federal holiday. And it's wonderful. It's fantastic that we have this holiday. Yeah. And at the same time, it's taken too long. Yeah. Now, tell me, as a, as a federal holiday, are people actually celebrating Juneteenth? Are they using it as you know, as a day of reflection about, you know, the end of slavery and what happened since then and maybe the achievements and contributions that, you know, African-Americans have, have made in that time. How, how is this day celebrated? Well, I would love to say yes. It is a celebration in the African-American community. Mm-hmm. Much more, much more. Even though it was signed into, it was signed as a federal holiday. I'm working today. My company's open. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I th- you know, finally we're not open on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but that is also taken years and years because yeah. we don't want to see who we are. We don't want to look at it because there's so much that we have to see about ourselves and it's very uncomfortable. And if you, you know, if we're going to do this work, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. I mean, Juneteenth is celebrated. It is celebrated. Yeah. In, in, in the United States, but not as it should be, I don't think. I mean, if I'm telling you, if I talk to a couple of my friends, maybe even kind of close friends, hey, are you guys off today for Juneteenth? They're like, why is today a holiday? Like people yeah. don't know it's a holiday. Interesting. Now, one of the things that, and this is where I first got to know you, you know, you joined the Black Colleague Network, which I uh, mentioned when you were at uh, Informa Tech. And I think one of the things that really struck me at the time was the fact that you were a very powerful ally, very passionate, um, and that was really coming through in you know in the way you spoke. And I think just listening to you at the time was 
was really interesting. Now, just being an ally, what what do you do as an ally? Can you explain, particularly for the listeners, you know, how would you kind of describe yourself as an ally and a white ally in, in particular? So it's little things, to be honest with you. There's a very large booklet called the White Ally Toolkit that talks about how to talk to, how to be a white ally, how to talk to people about our country, about white supremacy, about racism. Because if we don't start looking at it, we can't dismantle it from a systemic perspective mm. unless we start looking at it, you know, in a couple of, in sort of two different ways. And I kind of have gone about it more in this first way, to be honest with you. So there are really two different ways of being being an ally, and that's being very outspoken mm-hmm. at any kind of forum that is offered like this <laughs> or the Black Colleague Network and sort of, and, and I really kind of started my journey really wanting to call out white people. I, I still do that. I don't know if I'm as in your face as I used to be because a lot of what I've read has said, you know, that's not. It can be really not helpful you know, to be to be just calling out white people. I mean, but, but also challenging me to have conversations with a cousin or a sister mm-hmm. or you know somebody who's in my close circle about racism, about maybe something they just said I didn't yeah. think was very funny. It's a lot of different ways to do it, but I think. I think it's having first have that awareness and then just being a person who comes up and stands next to somebody. You know, yeah. I would certainly hope that I would be a person if somebody was being abused or um, if someone, if I saw a marginalization of someone occurring at a, at a, at a level in the public, like in a parking lot, mm-hmm. you know, which happens, you know, people get called, you know, bad names and, and things like that, that I would come up on. My goal is to come up alongside people and just be next to them and just say, you know, not even say anything necessarily. Just know, yeah. just know that they are seen. I see you. Mm-hmm. Because a, a lot of times it doesn't help. For example, if I, if I was in a situation like that and I saw, you know, there, and, and this happened recently, there was a woman in, in a neighborhood who, you know, in a neighborhood grocery store parking lot and she was being called out. She was being bullied, you know, by a bunch of white kids. Mm. And it doesn't help for me to go, hey, you guys, hey, knock it off. Yeah. Because it doesn't help that it doesn't help the the black person. What's helpful, I think, is to come alongside her and say, Hey, are you okay? Or I see her, can I get you to your car? I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. That's I mean, that's great. I mean, there's two two things there because obviously, as as an ally, you're more of an upstander, right? So if you see things that are wrong, you will act on them. But equally, you also have to think about your own safety at times. So you know, being an ally can also mean that you could put yourself potentially in harm's way if you're trying to support or protect somebody who is being marginalised or you know, something is going against them. So you ha- I guess you have to kind of think about when to act and what to do when you're acting, you know, and you're right. I, th- I think if it's just letting the person know, hey, are you okay? Is everything fine? Can I help you? I think that's quite powerful um, in itself. 
But um, that's good because just, I really want to get in the people's face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd rather do. Put up your dukes yeah. here, you know, with all of my five foot self. Oh, this is how we all feel inside at times, right? When we really oh, see definitely. something that's wrong and we want to act on it. But, um, oh, definitely. yeah. But the interesting thing is, obviously, even today, um, there's still a lot of this stuff going on around the world, but particularly in, in the US where we're seeing a lot of this. And it's certainly not helped by, what's been going on in the last few years with um, with Trump and uh, Republicans and, you know, all sorts of uh, interesting things happening in the U.S. that are really just seems to have raised that level of racism up a notch instead of the other way. And it must be really difficult in the U.S., you know, with all of this going on. I mean, where does this leave people? How are people thinking about about this there's people that don't believe that racism even exists in america which is just just crazy but the other thing i just want to mention you know when we spoke about kind of allyship and you mentioned certainly uh, george floyd which was really a pivotal moment in history now and you'll probably remember a lot of people came out and they spoke up against it they posted many things on social media now, I think as allies, um, and particularly as white allies, there was a little bit of criticism around that because some people looked at it as almost as a level of performative allyship, which is where somebody will speak up against something just to be recognized, you know, through likes, uh, you know, uh, yeah. or, or winning great comments and things like that but without then actually showing real support or taking any real action beyond that which leads to kind of further exclusion right and feelings of being repeatedly kind of let down i guess so you know somebody who is an ally uh, it needs to be clear what that actually means and how they're actually being an ally and you know a real ally as, as such What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I go through sort of phases, I guess, not that one builds on another kind of phase, but Mm. just kind of at times I can be very, um, I'll see something somebody posts and I might say something, you know, Mm. uh, that is considered divisive, right? You know, politically or whatever, whatever the case may be, politically, you know, racial and social justice. I mean, we had recently our pastor left our church and we had somebody new. Um, they were, we were all a part of like, let's find the new person. Okay. And so we got to put in our comments about um, what we'd like to see in a, in a, in a new um, leader of our church. Mm-hmm. And I broke down that I wanted the, them to be, you know, racially and socially minded, justice minded. And I'm telling you, I know for certain, I am the only person that put that down there. Now I, I'm not trying to promote myself. I'm just saying, I said to a couple of leaders, Hey, if anybody wants to talk to me about that, come find me. You know, I'm going to, you know, I'd be happy to talk about what do I mean by that? And, um, nobody came, <laughs> nobody wanted to talk about it, <laughs> but <laughs> nobody wanted to talk about this. We're still the white church. And in those places, I think, and, you know, talking about Republicans and conservatives and, and, Hmm. you know, I live in a, in this very white, you know, County and I go to a white church and everything. And people just assume that I'm Republican. Hmm. 
it's just an assumption that's made and it, their views just are imposed, you know. And thankfully, I have plenty of Christian friends who are liberal and never voted for Trump and would never vote for Trump ever, ever, ever. But we, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're kind of on this journey of being kind of the only people. I mean, I did a, a book group with, um, some women. It's called, uh, so you want to talk about race. Um, and it's a really excellent book. And, you know, this, these are the things we would talk about. Like, what do we do out there? How do we do this? Like, how do we talk to people? How do we, how do we be there for people without, I don't think any, I've never, I didn't hear anybody ever say that, you know, they were worried about putting themselves in danger, but, um, I think I'm getting off track here a little bit, but, um, I think what I want to say is you can't be too comfortable. You can't, you can't, you can't worry about being comfortable. And, and what I was saying about, I kind of go through phases where sometimes I think it's not worth the fight. Yeah. I give up. I mean, after Trump was elected, I gave up, you know, for a little while, to be honest, I just gave up. I was like, it's so not worth it, but it has polarized even more because there are, there aren't just people. I mean, we have the proud boys, you know, and the January 6th, you know, I mean, it's gotten worse. I feel yeah. like, I feel like, honestly, I feel like the white supremacy in the, I think, I feel like it's gotten worse. And everything that happened with um, overturning Roe versus Wade has yeah. divided the, the countries more. Well, I posted some stuff about that. I can't, I can't, which I can't repeat. It's gotten, I feel like it has gotten worse. And, you know, we yeah. call that white backlash. It's the backlash. Tell me, though. I mean, I, I know it, it seems like the country is going backwards a little bit, but I think we see a lot of this in, in the media today. And, you know, particularly those that live outside of the U S just looking at some of the things that go on there, think, wow, this is crazy. What's going on there. But I still have this belief that we are still talking about a small minority of people who are not only behaving this way, but the media are really, highlighting that fact which really makes the whole thing it almost blows it out of proportion is my thinking correct or you know am i completely wrong that no it has really got bad and it's continuing to get worse well that's a really good point mike and i don't have i don't i don't i'm so pessimistic anymore because the country has become so divided Mm. on so many issues racial, social, critical race theory. That's huge. They're banning it. in, in a, They're yes. banning critical race theory in a state. I mean, in, well, I'm sure it'll get banned in Texas next, you know, Florida and Texas. Yeah. Which they could just go be their own countries for all I'm concerned. But because it really, and I don't, maybe it is the media making a bigger deal out of it, but me and my friend, you know, my little circle of friends, you know, who the Democrats in Orange County do feel like it's gotten worse. Yeah. We, I, I honestly believe in my heart that it's gotten worse. But I'm is, sorry to say it. Yeah, it, it's frightening. And, you know, it's funny. I've been to the U.S. many, many times. I, I actually love traveling to the U.S. It's I love it for its kind of diversity in you know, different states. And even prior to George Floyd, you know, I would often be out there on business, on my own. You know, I'd go out for dinner. I'd happily, you know, walk back sometimes if it was close enough to, you know, when I say close enough, I'm talking about maybe no more than a mile, but happily walk back 
to my hotel at 10 o'clock in the evening without a single thought about ever being stopped by the police or being attacked or, or anything like that. And I guess since George Floyd and obviously the pandemic that, that followed, since I've started going back to the US, I guess my thought processes have, have actually changed. I seem to be a lot more aware and I think, wow, instead of walking that mile, I'm just going to, I'm going to catch an Uber and just make sure that, that I'm safe. And it's, it's a shame really that we are in that position, you know, in the world and particularly in, in the US as it is today. So you're right. Maybe things have, have got a lot worse that people have just become a lot more tuned into potential dangers that could exist. You know, being in the well, wrong place at, at the wrong the time, wrong for example, you know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the the backlash, the white backlash is just as strong as it was hmm. before the civil rights movement and during the civil rights movement. Wow. I feel like the white backlash that happened after George Floyd, because hmm. people were like, I just feel like people are so strong. There are so many people who strongly feel, and I'm just going to call out the white men and white women. There's nothing wrong with the way I think. I am right. Mm. I am right. I will be right until I die. Mm. And I will be so right that I will go down to your capital. I will go down to our, our capital and I will hurt people. I will break into Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. I will break into her house. I mean, it's so strong. Yeah. I call it the, I mean, I know it's white backlash, but it, I feel like the backlash is so strong. It's, yeah. it's stronger than it ever was. Yeah. Is that tied, do you think, to privilege that people believe that they oh my have? Gosh. Oh my gosh. 150,000%. However you say that. Yes. A hundred percent. Because we, I mean, the United States is centered on white privilege. Every single thing that every single point in history, every, every, just the way we even view the world, the way we, we, we view beauty, for example, you know, uh, the yeah. way we view education, the way we view, um, everything says to us white privilege. You have a privilege just because you were born white. Mm. I mean, that unpacking the, back, the invisible backpack thing, you know, to me, there were just so, so many, it's like 50 questions, you know, about, yeah. uh, you know, about where you feel like you're privileged. But I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You don't, you know, my friend, you know, doesn't, she doesn't have to educate, you know, does she have to educate my black friend? Does she have to educate her boys about how to behave if they get pulled over by police? Yes, she does. Mm. Yeah, And I mean, today more than ever today, when she was 17 years old, she's in her forties now, when she was 17 years old, she got pulled over by the police coming home from school one night on the freeway. She was 17 years old, a hmm. woman, a beautiful woman, by the way. And they had her get out of the car. This is a teenager, a teenager, yeah. get out of the car, ask her where she lived. Oh, no, you don't live there. No, you can't live there. Talking about her like she wasn't there. I mean, she gets followed in Nordstrom today. Yeah. She gets followed in Nordstrom. So I don't feel like, like, what's changed? Yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, this is, I'm talking about, this is uh, research done by Peggy McIntosh, right? 
this, yes. this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I've, yeah. I've read some of it, which is, which is really interesting. And it's, you're right. It's surprising how some of this still holds very much true, if not all of it today, particularly going into a shop and being followed around um, and almost being given that feeling that, Hey, you shouldn't be here because you can't afford clothes in this place or whatever it yeah. is. You know, um, there's danger. There's danger attached mm. somehow. There's threat. There is some threat attached to yeah. skin color. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know why that it. is. I really don't know why that is. Well, you know, it's because we want to criminalize because the United mm. States, so the United States was based on slavery, right? Mm. So the whole, that was an, it was economically based on slavery. So when, by the way, Juneteenth came around, you know, in 1865, two and a half years after President Lincoln signed the 13th Amendment, <clears throat> excuse me, that said that everyone is now free. Now they had 4 million people. What are they going to do with these 4 million people? Yeah. Well, you know what? There was a loophole in the 13th Amendment that said you will, everyone is created free except if you're a criminal. Yeah. So what happened to those 4 million people? That was the beginning of mass incarceration in the United States because black men in particular were criminalized. They were put in jail for quote unquote loitering or vagrancy. They had no jobs. People with no no jobs. jobs. Yeah. That was the beginning of mass incarceration in our country. And I think that incarceration, even today, is a very profitable business. (laughs) The more people that they can incarcerate, the more money they are making. So there is a whole system in place to to keep people there. It's, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, But tell me, um, you know, obviously as as an ally, um, and let's suppose in there are people who, want to be much more visible allies. What advice would you give? How can they become better allies, as it were? Well, first of all, and this is what kind of really got drummed into me that I was mentioning earlier, do your homework. There are so many fantastic resources out there. Mm. Um, Facing History, Seeing White Podcast, it's 14 podcasts by this by NPR. I mean, educate yourself about yeah. the system of racism and white supremacy that we, that we live in, do not depend on your black friends or go out and try and make a black friend. I recently literally had a man say to me, I need a black friend so I can understand this. I'm like, no, you need to think, and this guy's on a board of directors of like three major companies, you know, like, nope, you need to go do your homework. Yeah. Educate yourself. Do your, educate yourself. Be so educate yourself first of all. Read, talk to people who are like minded, get in a book club. Um, before you go out and do anything, educate yourself, see if you can break down your own barriers, you know, before you start going out and calling out white people like I do, like I want to do all the time, you know, spend time educating yourself about the system. Look at yourself. I mean, you know, there's a lot to be said for personal growth. If somebody doesn't want to grow, they don't want to grow. I mean, that's a big part. This is a huge part of emotional and mental intelligence, right? Is doing this kind of work to yeah. um, to dismantle racism. 
you have to do your own work and do it for months. And don't go and try and, you know, ask some person off the street, you know, I mean, quit asking people about their hair, quit touching people's hair, Mm. you know, just these little tiny things that make a big difference. Yeah. I also think as well through that education, if you're listening to people's experiences and stories is, you know, not to, not to challenge that, you know, not to see it as a personal attack, uh, which some people do, you know, everybody is different. Everybody has their own unique experiences, their own definition of diversity, you know, and inclusion, um, et cetera. And I, and I think what a lot of people do is they see a system and a structure that is in place that people believe is normal. And this is how and where everybody should fit into. And then the moment that you see people who are acting differently outside of those structures, they think that there's a problem, Absolutely. you know, and that's where the challenge comes in and the aggression, the microaggressions and all of those things yeah. um, play a part. Which is Absolutely which is really right. unfortunate, but tell me, Stacy, how how can we change this? <laughs> well, it starts out with small things. Mm. It starts out. It starts out with having a willingness to hear things you don't want to hear if you're white. Yeah. Mm. It starts out with a willingness to look at yourself in a in a, in a critical way. Um. I mean, it, it starts out with the desire. I mean, like you could, we could talk to people all day long. If nobody wants to change, people don't have a deep desire to change. Yeah. It's like, you know, if an alcoholic doesn't want to quit drinking, quit talking to them about it because, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the same kind of thing. There are people I don't waste my time with, to be honest. Yeah. But I think, I think the recognition of it is everything. And then what we can do to change it we we understand like every situation is different right every situation is a little different but in the situation see yourself and hear that person and see that person yeah and i think that goes a lot way a, a lot a lot further to change you know in the very beginning i used to think like what can i do i need to change the world you know what can i do and and realizing that the change just begins with me everything starts right here yeah if you do have you think desire, though that yeah it might be easier or it is easier to start to make these changes and breakthroughs in the workplace rather than in society in general. I, I often I think yes that, to that is because, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I often think that if we can start to make these changes within our workplaces, that the people in those workplaces can then obviously help to educate their own families and friends and, and things like that. Um, I mean, I the reason it, I think definitely yes to that is because mm-hmm. we sort of have to in the mm-hmm. workplace, right? We have to take our diversity training. We have to do these things. We have to take, I mean, you know, um, sexual harassment in the workplace started out with sexual harassment training, right? And did a lot yeah. of people push up against that? Sure, they did. But it kind of got ground into us, you know? Mm-hmm. And And I think because at work we do really... I mean, hopefully HR is requiring courses, you know, that, that like we had to take an informa tech and, you know, so I think it is easier to start there because then you have to talk about it. You kind of yeah. have to talk about it, but also, yeah. you know, make sure that the DEI 
people, the officers in the organizations and the people who are working in diversity and inclusion and who really care about it in the organization, make sure they're supported with money. Give them Mm -hmm. actual budget. I can't tell you how many DEI officers I talk to and people we talk to from the very big tech companies to the small, you know, retail banks and things who would say, yes, oh, yes, we have a, mm -hmm, yes, we have a chief diversity officer. Oh, yes, we have the heads of ERGs. Oh, yes, we have all those things. Well, do you have any money? Do you have any budget? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's the power to change things in the organization. I think that's the next, I think that's the next step. You know, obviously, um, you know, here at Informa, if you look, when was it that you you left? I can't remember how long ago. Um, twenty twenty one, beginning of twenty twenty one. Okay, so a couple of years. Um, I would honestly say that in the last couple of years, we are seeing some very positive changes across the DNI landscape. There's better things going on. It's it's fantastic to see, and it just tells me that the commitment we have in our company with Starting with our with our leadership, um, oh. we're making those changes, albeit that they're incremental and they're slow, but it's positive, um, and we just have to keep working on it. And I do agree that more investment is certainly what's what's needed. More budget, either make things happen quicker, um, and to get programs in place that will really, um, you know, step up our game as an inclusive organization and i think this is a challenge as you've quite rightly said that most organizations have and those that have dei officers etc and you know we know that accelerated following george floyd that you know lots of companies put these positions in place some companies are even de-investing in this space now um which is such a shame because they think that because everything's gone quiet with um you know, situation with George Floyd, that everybody's happy again and everything's back to normal. And we're still at the beginning of such a long journey. Um, so there's much more the to do. States, but so, United yeah. States took yeah. slavery. It's taken hundreds of years to, to even recognize the fact that our system was built on slavery. Yeah. It's not yeah. going to change in two years. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is even acknowledging that in the first place. You know, um, you know that's still not really acknowledged, but and it's the same for the UK as well. You know, slavery has really kind of helped to. If you look at some of the amazing buildings that we have in the UK, that comes straight off of the the backs of slavery. Oh. Um, you know, so but the, these things are not taught in schools, and yeah. you know, I think part of the lack of education that we have around history, slavery. I was even talking earlier on today about UK in particular, where you know the migration of people that came over from the Caribbean directly after the war to help rebuild the country is something that's not taught in schools as much. Well, so, yeah, it always seems to be a subject that people want to avoid, and I don't know whether that's, a feeling of shame around it, but you know, it's happened, it's history, but we, we need to talk about it. People need to embrace it, I think, and hopefully, you know, reflect on that, but also celebrate some of the achievements that, you know, many black and Asian and various people of color 
uh, have had in these countries and the contributions they've made to, you know, help to build these countries and make businesses strong. You know, that, that is often not agree more. discussed too much, but hey, yes, we, we have a long road <laughs> ahead of us in terms we, of... We get to have this, this conversation, space. aren't we lucky? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yes. And the more we can talk about it, hopefully this is, you know, this is just one vehicle where we can hopefully educate uh, people and hopefully get them to see differently, uh, you know, for a different set of eyes, um, et cetera. Educate their own uh, children. Um, because educate I think it their is, own children. That's really big. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's through children that we will begin to see changes. I don't think we'll see any major changes in in our lifetime as such. But, um, right. you know, I hope for our children, grandchildren, etc., that, you know, there will be a better world there for them. But even that, we've got so many other issues with uh, sustainability. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> that's a, but that's a big one. That's a big oh, one. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a big Brilliant. one. So that would be, yeah, that's a great, that's a and I was going to say that earlier, parents, you know, understand so that you can help your children understand. Yeah. So, so Stacey, we've come to the end of the show um, already, and I know we could, we could talk wow. for hours more. But yes. I really, first of all, I really want to thank you for being a very passionate ally and continue to do what you do. We need many more people like you, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to thank you for spending the time to, you know, to share your views and your your opinions. Do you have any anything else you want to say or finish on? Any final comments? Uh, I just, I, I really just want to thank you, Mike, for the opportunity to have this sort of platform um, and to offer my own self as a resource to any people mm. out there, especially white people. Who yeah. who don't have to share the passion that I have, but they just want to take the just want to you know understand a little bit more, yeah, um, about what it means to be a white ally and the things that we can be doing. And I just feel absolutely honored to be here today. Oh, and thank you so I want much. To thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank uh, you for what you're doing, Mike. No, it's a real it's a real pleasure, and I'm hoping that people do come forward. I'm sure that you could educate and and really help quite a lot of people not just in the US, but also in the UK and around the world as well. So we'll see how things go. (laughs) That's the work. That's the work we want to do right there. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, Stacey, thank you once again uh, very much. And hopefully I will speak to you uh, again soon. But for now, uh, take care. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch again. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now. listening to this episode of diversity matters if you liked what you heard then be sure to hit like and subscribe and we'll see you next time